You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Jones in English. He's going to have Aaron Nick Ford on campus. 
He's going to have a lot of great activities going on at Morgan State's campus. And what Jenkins did during the administration was seeking to solve the problem of race and misunderstanding of race and contributions through the campus bringing that to the community. So in 1947-48, there is an effort by the Maryland Education Association to honor Frederick Douglass. This was the Colored Educational Association of Maryland. As we know, we have a very ugly racial history here in America of a bifurcated system, one white and then one colored or black. And so Morgan State University embraced that idea of the colored experience and did not find them to be negative, but celebrated themselves as equal and patriots and citizens. What I have here for you are a series of articles from the Afro-American newspaper starting as early as 1951. And what happens is that the colored teachers of Maryland decided to commission a sculpture to commemorate Douglas. Douglas dies in 1895, but his presence as of his 200 year anniversary birthday celebration on last year, he still speaks to us and resonates in terms of his quest for civil and social justice. So in 1951, there is going to be a commissioned effort of $15,000 raised by the Maryland Education Association of colored teachers to commemorate Douglas in an eight foot tall bronze sculpture. Initially, it was to be eight feet tall on a marble base that would be centered in the grassy knoll of the campus's then half campus, which is off of Hilly Road and Cold Spring, where it is in front of Holmes Hall. So people had to submit jury observations of what they would do in creating this exhibit, and James Lewis wins the commission. And the article says Morgan to receive a statue of Douglas, a 15,000 bronze figure to be erected on campus. An eight-foot bronze figure of Frederick Douglass costing $15,000 is being given to Morgan State College by the Maryland Educational Association. The statue is being sculpted by James E. Lewis, acting head of the art department at Morgan. It is proposed that the statue be placed in the center of the newly planned courtyard on campus. It was at this time it was to be surrounded by benches and perpetually lit throughout the course of the day. Mr. Lewis submitted his sketches and his proposed <coughs> statue, and he won the acclaim. So when we get a chance, please visit Morgan State University and take a look at our sculpture that's of Douglas. It is rather a captivating figure of Douglas. And I actually did a, a travel with some uh, graduate students in social work. And I had one person ask if there's any spirituality around that because he's actually facing south. But his figure looks like it's moving in a fashion, has a level of fluidity to it, as my artisans would tell me, it has fluid movement, the sculpture. So he's actually facing south in a southeast direction. And of course, the coat is flapping, and he is walking in a rather determined fashion. And it's actually said in one of the articles in the Afro that James Lewis kind of put a little bit of his impression and his face into the Douglas Memorial to epitomize himself. So after they raised the money, it was then unveiled on the campus. And I have my colleague, Dr. Edwin Johnson, with me in the back there. And I have to definitely acknowledge uh, Dean Grant, who was one of the collectors of the funds. He was a very remarkable person at Morgan State, George Grant. He was the chairman of the Douglas Monument Committee for, on behalf of the NEA. And then Fran Butler, Bates High School, Annapolis, who was also collecting monies for the, the sculpture. At its end, the sculpture weighed 1,600 pounds and did not make the marble base. It actually is on a granite base. So it's not surrounded by the benches that had originally been attended, but it does strike a very remarkable figure when it is basically the center of personality on an elevated stature in the grassy knoll. Just to finish very briefly, what happens in 1956 is that the sculpture is unveiled by Baltimore students, Baltimore City students, who come to the campus 
and pull away the cloak. In this article from the uh, Afro-American in 1956, when school children from throughout the state pulled away the covering on Saturday, this is what the audience at Morgan State College saw. The eight foot, four inch statue of Frederick Douglass was cast in bronze at a total cost of 10,000. It weighs 1,600 pounds and sits on four granite pedestals overlooking the campus and represents a project of the Maryland Education Association. At the base of the statue are shown Governor McKeldin, who made the dedicatory speech, and James E. Lewis, head of the Morgan Art Department, shaking hands. What happens 10 years later is that students from Baltimore Public Schools come to Morgan's campus and are given a lecture by Benjamin Qualls. Dr. Qualls is the first academically trained historian to write a full biographical work on Douglas. So he gives the first intellectual treatment of Douglas that we have. And he was very enamored with Douglas, and I'm sure John will go into greater detail. What I thought was very interesting is that the Afro captures some of these sixth graders who are impressed by the Douglas statue. I'm going to read a couple of them. If there are your family members, or maybe even you, Please let me know, because I'd love to know if these people are still around. Katie Flowers, a sixth grader at the Francis L. Murphy Lab School, took a trip to Morgan College to hear a lecture on Douglas given by Benjamin Quarles. Frederick Douglass's real name was Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey, and he tried to escape slaves. He was an escape slave. He learned a great deal. I enjoyed the lecture. Kevin Harris says, our class went to Morgan State to hear Dr. Benjamin Quarles talk about Frederick Douglass the great leader of the colored Americans. It was interesting to know that Douglas was once a slave and escaped to become a free man. At Morgan College, there's an impressive statue of him on the campus. We are proud as Marylanders. Carla Clemens says, we went to Morgan to hear the lecture on the 150th anniversary of Douglas's birthday, and he was an escaped slave. He was very impressed, and I was happy to hear about it. So we actually have sixth graders reflecting on this, so we'll let you know the transcendence of Douglas and his impression on the state. So, John, if you want to sit or stand, it's up to you. And I'll turn it over to you. Okay. So, enjoy. Thank you. All right. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, maybe we can hit the lights a little bit. Um, you can see in the back. Uh, all right. Uh, quickly, I just wanted to acknowledge Adrian uh, Fisher very helpful over the course of many months. I have used the microfilm here at Not Crack to discover the lost history of Frederick Douglass visiting Cambridge, Maryland, as well as Denton, <coughs> Maryland, Caroline County, uh, and other areas of the state of Maryland. Uh, this presentation will focus just on Baltimore. And uh, Mr. Fields is here, so the party is ready to start because Lou Fields is in the building. Right, the right time, Mr. Fields, wonderful. Okay, so, uh, Everyone is good. I'm, I was told to try to keep my remarks short because I could talk a lot, but we'll try to leave a lot of room for questions at 6.45 now. So we'll try to end uh, by about 7.30 or so. All right, so um, thank you for coming. Uh, some of you may know the state of Maryland, uh, as well as Rochester, uh, New York, other areas, Washington, D.C. We just finished celebrating the bicentennial of Frederick Douglass. Uh, it was just the 201st birthday. Um, all right. So all right. So so what that said is that uh, I wrote a book on Frederick Douglass in Washington D.C. It was published in 2012. We talked to the Library of Congress, the American Library of Paris, politics and prose, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but I really waited uh, until the bicentennial to start uh, kind of my historical activism because um, 
I'll get into it a little bit tonight, but I feel that Frederick Douglass's history, as Mr. Fields can tell a lot of people, is really not yet recognized, it's not yet celebrated. It's wonderful there are Bayers and Bells Point, but I think that maybe we can possibly get some historical markers uh, to denote the greater knowledge of Douglas and Fells Point as well as all throughout the state of Maryland. So I will just get into the show. All right, so as Dr. Jones um, already uh, let you know a little bit about Dr. Benjamin Corbels, who was born in 1904, died in 1996. Uh, he's really a legendary historian. He's in the same, uh, same class, the generation of Rayford Logan, who was at Howard University, John Hope Franklin. Um, Professor Corbels, Dr. Corbels uh, actually taught at Dillard uh, before he came to Morgan State. Uh, he was actually in the faculty of Dillard, which is in New Orleans. Um, in 1948, he publishes Frederick Douglass. Uh, it's the first modern biography of Frederick Douglass. There were actually biographies of Douglass written by others while he was living. One is Frederick May Holland, another is James Monroe Gregory, who Dr. Jones will know was actually um, a student at Howard when he wrote his biography of Douglass while Douglass was living. I will say that uh, for any historian who comes to Baltimore and speaks like at the Rachel Lewis Museum, like Professor Stauffer from Harvard, does not acknowledge that Benjamin Corbels is the first modern biographer, as well as the first modern African-American biographer on Douglas is really quite blasphemous. So I think that some people in the room here are familiar with his canon of work. It's very impressive. Um, when I was in high school, I read Lincoln and the Negro. I thought it was an incredible, powerful book. It took me a little while to discover some of his other works. Black Abolitionist was published in 1969, which was, um, Dr. Quarles was, in a quiet way, a very revolutionary historian. He um, was very thorough in his examination of records, and he was uh, kind of a reserved, quiet person. Um, maybe some people here knew him personally, but his scholarship was very revolutionary. It caused, uh, so let's say, the standard historical American industrial complex to begin looking at African American history in a new way, in a new perspective, and that was through use of primary source documents. And the Negro in the American Revolution is another very, very important uh, piece of scholarship of Dr. Quarles. Um, so Dr. Quarles, oops. Dr. Quarles existed within academia. To the right is William Alston L. Okay, he passed away last year. He's a legendary ambassador for corner men in Southeast Washington, DC. He was recruited out of Lord Reformatory to work at the Anacostia Community Museum. I had the great benefit of um, getting to know William as a street reporter in Anacostia. I featured William in many, many stories for featured international media. Uh, William uh, was, a was a member of the Morris Science Temple of America and talking about the importance of uplifting fallen humanity through examination and discussion of lost history. And William, uh, kind of founded this organization called Old Anacostia Douglasonians. So the way that I approach history, which is very different than other scholars, is because of the, uh, the influences that I have had. And uh, William Alston, that was a very, very important influence to me. And you can see right here, this is Lower Martin Luther King Jr. Avenue in Southeast Washington. That is a large uh, wheat paste of um, Dr. Frederick Douglass. For those of you who are real Douglas scholars, I see there's a gentleman from the State Commission on African-American History and Culture. I've already acknowledged Mr. Lou Fields, who's put in decades of work on the ground. So I know there are some people here who know a lot about Frederick Douglass. For those of you who know David Blight's book, who's a professor at Yale University, 
I will say that I hope that Professor Blight's book wins the Pulitzer Prize. My book is cited in that book eight times. I hope that Professor Blight's book wins the Pulitzer Prize to encourage and kind of inspire a new generation of scholars who can come behind his work and correct all the errors and speculations and incomplete history in his book. That's all I would say about that. All right, so where do I come from? Well, I'm a, I don't know, I kind of like, I'm all over the place, 16th Street bus, which uh, Dr. Jones knows well in uh, DC. I kind of came up on the back of the 70 bus in Georgia Avenue. I was taught about the impact of the riots in Washington by street griots. And uh, I'm actually from the country. I went to Sherwood High School. If anybody knows Sherwood, we used to actually play Lake Clifton in the uh, state for football championships. But uh, when I was coming up in the country roads and Greg Road, Sundown Road, Zion Road, etc., there were a lot of headstones that would say Frederick Douglass, etc. Snowden family name is a very big name in St. Spring community. Um, this actually is not in St. Spring, this is in Z on Zion Road. But you can see Frederick Douglass Snowden, 1897 to 1947, World War I veteran. Uh, so Frederick Douglass Patterson, some of you know, he started the United Negro College Fund. There were, Frederick Douglass's impact was so consequential that for generations there were people named like Frederick Douglass Jones, Frederick Douglass, etc. And so where I came up in the country roads of Sandy Spring, Maryland, uh, I was kind of taught about Frederick Douglass in a, in a kind of colloquial way. I was told as a kid that Frederick Douglass came through Sandy Spring. Emily Edmondson and there were other people that Frederick Douglass knew. Uh, spent time in Sandy Springs. If anybody knows, hopefully someone knows Sandy Springs. Sharp Street Methodist Church was founded in Sandy Springs by folks from Baltimore in 1867. The Sharp Street uh, School for African Americans was the first African Americans, uh, first school for African Americans in Montgomery County. That is the community from whence I come. So that is why I take this history very serious. And I've told folks at the Maryland Commission African American History and Culture the same thing. So with that said, to the right is a book uh, that I wrote, Frederick Douglass of Washington, D.C. Uh, for those of you who go down the Eastern Market, it's a little different than Lexington Market, but uh, Eastern Market is down on Capitol Hill. It's like a cool place to go on weekends, etc. Uh, right near Eastern Market is uh, Capitol Hill Books. My friend Jim Toole just retired. He's a real salty guy. He puts little notes in the books, and if you come in there with a cell phone and say, life or awesome, he will borrow you from the bookstore. So um, he puts his little catchy notes in the books, and as you may see, I don't know if you can see in the back, but the little note uh, says, Trump says he's doing a great job. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I will just read this. The recent announcement that statues of Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass are planned to be erected in the State House in Annapolis within the next year is a culmination of decades of work of advocates across the state to raise a greater local, local awareness of these two native freedom fighters. It is commendable. I do want to acknowledge Mr. Fields because I know Mr. Fields has put in decades of work with uh, Frederick Douglass and, and uh, I hear you tell me. However, has, as the state has now closed out its celebration of the Frederick du Douglass Bicentennial, we must take an honest assessment of what the state has and has not done to recognize and uplift the sacred history of Frederick Douglass in Maryland. Local communities will continue to raise awareness of Douglass's life and activities. Following the Civil War, Douglas traveled extensively across Maryland. He spoke in Annapolis, Baltimore, Cambridge, Cumberland, Denton, Easton, Frederick, Frostburg, Hagerstown, Rising Sun, Salisbury, St. Michael's, and Westminster. 
Nearly a decade ago, a statue was erected on the front lawn of the Talbot County Courthouse, denoting his 1878 appearance there. But Douglas also spoke in the courthouses of Caroline, Dorchester, Washington, and Wacomico counties. Furthermore, following the Civil War, Douglas had a relationship with Governors Henry Lloyd and Lloyd Lowndes Jr., as well as United States Congressman, who's from Baltimore, Henry W. Hoffman, John L. Thomas, and Louis E. McComas, who also served as United States Senator representing Maryland, and whose granddaughter, Catherine A. Byron, was the first woman elected to represent Maryland in the United States Congress. Moving forward, an equal emphasis on recognizing Douglas through sculpture should exist for recognizing Dr. Douglas in context of scholarship and local history by organizations and institutions supported with state funds, such as the University of Maryland, Maryland Historical Society, Maryland Humanities, Maryland State Archives, Banner Creek Douglas Museum, and the Maryland Commission on African American History and Culture, which I know is present tonight. A continued ongoing statewide effort to research and disseminate the lost local history of Frederick Douglass in the state is a fitting tribute as we move beyond the celebration of the bicentennial and begin to uplift the lost history of Maryland's most consequential native son. All right, so um, I will try to keep this, I'm already a little behind on time. I don't want to get in trouble with Ms. Fisher, so I'll try to move quickly. So Douglas Historic sets of interest in Bells Point, I will go through some of these uh, this evening. I guess people of different generations pronounce this differently. I know we don't pronounce it like original. What is the accepted pronunciation tonight of uh, Thames Street? Thames, Thames? Thames. Thames, Thames. Okay, I don't want to get in trouble. All right, so 28 Thames Street, Bells Point. Some of you know Nathaniel Knight's bookshop was at 28 Thames Street. Douglas procured the first book he ever owned, a popular collection of poems and essays called The Columbian Orator from Knight's Bookshop. Douglas lived on various streets in the neighborhood, including the corner of Alisana and South Durham Street, Philpott Street, and Block Street. In the early 1890s, Douglas bought property and developed homes on Dallas Street, where the Strawberry Alley Methodist Church and the had been. All right, I will not uh, belabor this point because I want to get into the um, scholarship that you have not maybe heard or seen before, but I will just quickly say that uh, one of the most important books on Frederick Douglass uh, was written by Dixon Preston. He was an Eastern Shore historian. Um, he actually covered the White House and was behind, uh, he was in the press motorcade behind Kennedy when he was assassinated, but that's a whole other story. But Dixon Preston's Young Frederick Douglass is an extremely important book. I would hope people here are familiar with it. Um, Dixon Preston actually found documents that confirmed that Frederick Douglass was born in 1818. Douglass and his life was born in 1817. Um, it's a very, very important book to start with. The Negro in Maryland Politics, 1870 to 1910, does not even mention Frederick Douglass one time. Douglass was extremely involved in Maryland politics post-Civil War. Um, I guess I'll just say there's a great book right now, Birthright Citizens, A History of Race and Rights in Ante Antebellum America. Professor Martha Jones, she's been really traveling all over the country, all over the world. A lot of the scholarship that she discusses is about um, early Baltimore. There's a lot of overlap with some of the scholarship that, um, that I'm kind of uh, trying to discover. I will quickly acknowledge that Dr. Ed Papenfuse, who's involved with the Baltimore City Archives, which I know Dr. Jones is a very active participant. Um, he has, uh, Dr. Papenfuse, whose name is on the side of the State Archives in Annapolis, has um, done a lot of interesting research on early 
the black community, the free black community in Bells Point, Baltimore, not specifically about, say, Frederick and Anna, but it, there's a lot of overlap. Um, you can find his work on YouTube. I believe he spoke at the Bells Point Preservation Society. The title of his presentation is 1838, The Baltimore Anna Murray and Frederick Bailey Douglas Left Behind. Um, he's been extremely supportive, and I'm very grateful for his uh, his assistance and his support of someone who kind of just rolled into his office off of Greenmount Street one day and started talking about Frederick Douglass. Uh, also, Professor Lawrence Jackson at Johns Hopkins University, some of you may have seen or heard of his presentation. Uh, he's done mapping Douglas in Maryland. I believe he's worked with his um, students at Johns Hopkins University and used a series of historical maps to um, to place Douglas on the Eastern Shore as well as in Baltimore. So those are uh, I see some people are taking photos, um, but uh, that's wonderful. I just, there's, there's a lot of scholarship that needs to be done, but this is some of the existing scholarship. All right, so what I'm going to share with you tonight is something that's really important about Frederick Douglass. Frederick Bailey in Baltimore. Uh, okay, so Nathaniel Knight ran a bookshop. He did a lot more than that, but I will just start with that. When Douglas is about 12 or 13 years old, he buys the Columbian Orator. The Columbian Orator was a very popular school book of its day. Uh, it's a collection of, let's say, essays in that book. There is a dialogue between master and slave in Columbian Orator. Douglas talks extensively about how he just read that inside, outside, in between, over, under. And uh, this book was extremely important to Frederick Douglass's just, I really don't like the beautiful pontific pontificating words of intersectionality and all this other stuff, but I would just say that the Columbia Order is an extremely important book to Frederick Douglass's history. So I'm saying that because who was this guy Nathaniel Knight? Now my friend David Blight wrote a book on the Columbia Orator and had an opportunity, had decades to do this research, did not do this research. And uh, neither did Dixon Preston. And I think Preston is a wonderful historian, but for whatever reasons, they just haven't looked into who this guy Nathaniel Knight was. Knight was a native of Salem, Massachusetts, born in 1778. The first advertisement for his bookstore in Baltimore is 1801, which you will see to the left. He printed Methodist sermons. His son became a Catholic priest, moving from St. Mary's um, here in Baltimore uh, to D.C., where he was rector of St. Patrick's Church, which is right around the corner from MLK Library. Knight died in 1854 and was buried and still buried in Loudoun Park Cemetery. He is mentioned by name in Douglas's 1855 autobiography. Now, Douglas mentions his 1845 autobiography of acquiring this book, does not mention how and where he acquired it. Knight dies in 1854. Douglas puts his name in his 1855 autobiography, My Bondage and My Freedom. A collection of Knight's papers are held in private hands, discovered by a Morgan State university student in the 1870s, and they've been held within the family since. I was planning tonight to talk more about that, but I'm not going to just because there's so much material. But I would just say that uh, there's an African-American family uh, in Memphis in North Carolina that has a large collection of Nathaniel Knight's private papers. It's an interesting story behind that. I won't get into it. But it shows that Nathaniel Knight was extremely important to uh, the community of Fells Point say the, the white community, the official community, but also he was a street guy. He was an underground guy. He was supplying the black community with literature, and doing a lot of other things that he should not have been doing, which I will detail in just a second. The letter that you can see right here, I don't know if you work with the lights. This is, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to point at you. Uh, Salem, 
This is from 1807, okay, Salem, Massachusetts. Um, this is the left here is really rainy, but you can see the Baltimore Sun ran a quick acknowledgement of night passing in 1854. All right, this is Douglas describing his acquiring Columbian, the Columbian Orator at Knight's Bookstore. This is the three different, three different versions. First version is from Douglas's narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave, 1845. I was now about 12 years old, and the thought of being a slave for life began to bear heavily upon my heart. Just about this time, I got hold of a book entitled The Columbian Orator. Every opportunity I got, I used to read this book among much of uh, among much of other interesting matter, I found in it a dialogue between a master and a slave. And a slave. This is 1855. I had made enough money to buy what was then a very popular school book, The Columbian Orator. I bought this edition to my library of Mr. Knight on Thames Street, Bells Point, Baltimore, paid him 50 cents for it. I was first led to buy this book by hearing some little boys say that they were going to learn some little pieces out of for an exhibition. This is Douglas in 1892. To my bondage I could see no end. It was a terrible reality, and I shall never be able to tell how sadly that thought shaped my young spirit. Fortunately or unfortunately, I had, by blacking boots for some gentlemen, earned a little money with which I purchased of Mr. Knight on Thames Street what was then a very popular school book, The Columbian Orator, for which I paid 50 cents. I was led to buy this book by hearing some little boys say that they were going to learn some pieces out of it for the exhibition. This volume was indeed a rich treasure and for a time every opportunity afforded me was spent in diligently pursuing it, perusing it. By a show of hands, how many people think that, uh, I'm share with you right now. So, okay, <clears throat> so it's kind of the end of the night. Breaking the law. Really breaking the law. Big time breaking the law. What he was doing. You can see to the right, radical bookseller. Does anybody here know Greedy Reads? Greedy Reads Bookstore. Okay, Julia is a, is a radical bookseller. She's uh, celebrating a one-year anniversary, I believe, on March 10th. Please come out because uh, since she opened her shop, I have been pestering her just like I pester Miss Fisher and Dr. Jones all the time with emails and stuff that I tell Julia she's a radical bookseller keeping the tradition of radical booksellers in Bell's Point alive and well. And I say that because this gentleman, Nathaniel Knight, very simple, all you have to do is open the phone book, which back in the day was the city directory. This is the 1831 city directory. On the bottom, you can see, Knight Nathaniel, Justice of the Peace, and bookseller, Dame Street, uh, South Side near Market Street. So Frederick Douglass buys the Columbian Orator from a bookseller in a justice of the peace in the late 1820s or early 1830s on Thames Street, Fells Point. This is a very radical action. Okay, we celebrate Douglass for agitate, 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 and a lot of these scholars and historians at universities don't like that I agitate the bejesus out of them. Because I was taught history on the back of the bus in the street corner at 16th and W Street, which is not a place you see a lot of historians, you see a lot of gunshots. So with that said, I discuss history of like Douglas and the Freeman's Bank and what that means to everyday working class folks that work for DPW and stuff like that. And so they tell me, John, you gotta tell people this history because it's not been told. So with Dr. Jones' permission and other people, I'm before you tonight to share with you that the whole history of Frederick Douglass has just not been told. It has been so sanitized, it has been so diminished. And that's because people have not done the research. They have not done the scholarship. 
Okay, to the left is a document found in the Baltimore City Archives off Greenmount Avenue, was it 27th and Greenmount? All right, Dr. Papafuse is there Tuesdays sometimes, so when he's available. Uh, I'm not gonna get into the whole dynamics of finding this document, but it was an interesting uh, adventure. This document is a simple form document, City of Baltimore, 1827. To the bottom right, you can see Nathaniel Knight's signature, Justice of the Peace. Okay, this is 1827. To be appointed Justice of the Peace, um, so let me take a step back. Knight served as a Justice of the Peace for many years. It, he's, he's a Justice of the Peace when, he's, when he sells the book to Frederick Douglass. Um, the, the work, the um, WPA, there's a whole long history. There's a lot of municipal documents that are at the Baltimore City Archives. It's a kind of a little bit of a convoluted system to look them up, but you can do so if you're so inclined. There are some women in red hats that have been doing research there for many, many years. These documents really just require a little bit of time and effort and energy to seek out. But what this is is that a Justice of the Peace is a low-level magistrate judge. So if, like, you know, I'm selling my foodstuffs at the Fells Point Market after 6 o'clock, I'm not supposed to be there, a constable or a police officer sees me, and I, you know, say, Jack, they'll bring me to Mr. Knight's bookstore right there and assess, essentially, you'll find what the judge will, will evaluate right there, just like, today in the situations, warrant officers, etc. So this is uh, really important because Nathaniel Knight is uh, appointed Justice of Peace. This is not something that you just uh, just willy-nilly got. You had to, you had to uh, be, at this point, your, um, this point in history, you had to be approved by the, um, either recommended by the mayor, uh, an official in the city, and you had to be approved by Annapolis, I have not gone to Annapolis to find who actually nominated Nathaniel Knight to be Justice of the Peace, but I hope to do that. Um, this is why it's radical. Okay, this is from the Maryland Historical Society. The Maryland Justice containing approved forms for the use of Justices of the Peace of the State of Maryland, 1825. Okay, see this is page 118. We'll see um, rules and instructions for dealing with, quote, Negroes and slaves. You see to the far right, it's highlighted. No person shall trade, barter, commerce, or in any way deal with any slave without leave or license of the master or owner under the penalty of $33 and one-third cents. To reiterate, there was another <coughs> section that said, any person receiving from Negroes any good shall be considered as dealing with them and subject to the penalties for so doing. So what this guy Nathaniel Knight is doing is he's, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I, I, I don't want to like pontificate, speculate too much because there's so much research, but this is really, really important. This is extremely important. Frederick Douglass was someone who could converse with peasants and presidents. Okay? He had the gift of gab. He was someone who could do code switching. He had emotional intelligence, all of these various terms that we use today. He was just a very sophisticated fellow. Okay, he could play the street corner, he could play the White House. Um, Ranger Nate Johnson, uh, at the Fred, he was formerly at the Frederick Douglass House, he's now um, at the State Park in South Carolina. Uh, Ranger Nate was, is a wonderful guy. Him and I had um, extended conversations about Frederick Douglass and his history, and uh, 
how that, how that story is told at the Frederick Douglass National Historic Site in DC. And Ranger Nate and I one time had about a three or four hour conversation about this. And we, the conversation was uh, young Frederick Bailey, 12, 13 years old, from the Eastern Shore. You know, he's already kind of acclimated himself to the hustle and bustle of city life. He has understood the dynamics of he is an enslaved person. While there are free black folks and they have very different rules of engagement, he knows that the laws that uh, you know, the laws are not in his favor. And uh, Douglas saw violence on the in the Eastern Shore. He knew uh, the dangers of uh, just operating and existing. So I say that because it's really interesting of how and why did Frederick Douglass develop some sort of relationship with Nathaniel Knight where he bought this book. Did, uh, was Douglas sent of errands from the old household to, to you know, pick up stationery, to pick up documents at the Knight bookstore, and young Frederick Bailey struck up a conversation? Did Frederick Bailey have a friend among the Point Boys, which is kind of like a little rascal type gang he was involved with? Did he have somebody who said, hey, Mr. Knight is a friend of mine, Freddie, tell him I sent you? Did Douglas, uh, did Douglas Frederick Bailey, did he wait uh, you know, for Nathaniel Knight one morning to open his shop? Did he wait for him one night when he closed up the shop? What, were, what was that dialogue like? What was that conversation? I mean, that is something that uh, other historians might speculate and talk about intersectionality and all this other nonsense. I won't do that. I just think it's a very interesting dynamic. And for people who have uh, existed in communities where you have to kind of bend for yourself, I think there's lots of different ways to negotiate that space. And obviously, Frederick Douglass was able to negotiate this space. And then Nathaniel Knight obviously also trusted this young man enough to sell this book. And Nathaniel Knight, I mean, the whole dynamics of Nathaniel Knight essentially provides. Is that Jennifer Morris in the back? I think so. All right, we've got Anacostia Community Museum in the neighborhood. All right. So what's really interesting about this is that uh, Nathaniel Knight is essentially, he's breaking the law. He's breaking the law selling book to Frederick Bailey. He's also breaking along with other, other activities he, he might have been doing. But when he's breaking the law, Frederick Bailey is, is or Knight is just as guilty of breaking the law as Frederick Bailey. So it's a very complicated dynamic. I've already talked about certain issues. Uh, you guys, I can see people are thinking deeply about this, so I will move on. All right, so Nathaniel Knight was actively uh, involved in the Fellsborn community, actively petitioned the mayor and city council. These are a collection of documents found at the Baltimore City Archives. Um, to the left uh, is a petition, I believe, from 1830-31 for street improvements in Fells Point. To the bottom, to the bottom left right there, you can see Nathaniel Knight's uh, signature. Am I running a long, long time? Five minutes. Five minutes. Um, five minutes left? Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. To the uh, to the left is a thing in my signature. To the middle is a is a document to the mayor and city council. Yes, sir. Okay. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll be able to do that. All right. Um, to the middle is a is a petition to the mayor. <coughs> excuse me, city council. Knight was a prominent uh, citizen in Fells Point. And then to the uh, to the right, you see with my little pencil, that Nathaniel Knight is serving as an election judge in the uh, September 1836 in the election of uh, to the Senate of Maryland. So this guy Nathaniel Knight was uh, 
interesting guy. All right. Strawberry Island Methodist Church of Fells Point. This was where Douglas was a member. He became a member in 1831. I'll just read this. This is from uh, one of Douglas's biographies. While thus religiously seeking knowledge, I became acquainted with a good old colored man named Lawson, a more devout man than he I never saw. He drove a dray for Mr. James Ramsey, the owner of a rope walk on Fells Point, Baltimore. This man not only prayed three times a day, but he prayed as he walked through the streets at his work on his drayer everywhere. His life was a life of prayer, and his words, when he spoke to his friends, were about a better world. Uncle Lawson lived near Master Hugh's house and became deeply attached, and I became deeply attached to the old man. I went often with him to prayer meeting and spent much of my leisure time with him on Sunday. The old man could read a little, and I was a great help to him in making out the hard words, for I was a better reader than he. I could teach him the letter, but he could teach me the spirit, and high refreshing times we had together in singing, praying, and glorifying God. This is a photo of the interior of Strawberry Alley Chapel. As you can see, you have the white congregation, first level, and then black. So, so where is, quick question, where is Strawberry Alley in Fells Point? Strawberry Alley today is on, I, I, I'm going to get to that, sir. But it's on Dow, basically Dallas Street, right between was it Eastern Avenue, Dallas Street, where Douglas Place is. I guess they call it Douglas Place. I, I'm going to get to that. Thank you for your question. Um, so you can see the, you can see the, um, Black Christians in the second gallery. All right. Two from PowerPoints, don't make me sorry. All right. Um, gonna have to stretch a little more than that time. But uh, so this is known on religious life of uh, Frederick Ann in the 1830s Baltimore. You can see there's a photo of the exterior of the Strawberry Alley Chapel, built in 1773. Um, Dr. Papenthus talks about uh, the different churches that uh, Douglas and Annie Wild just read this. For the most part, the community life of the free blacks in Baltimore in the Baltimore days of Anna and Frederick was centered on the religious institutions, Catholic and Protestant. The Douglas associations were mostly Protestant and specifically Methodist in origin. The names can be found associated with the four prominent black churches in 1838. Asbury, which is on the east side of town uh, on Douglas Street, Strawberry Methodist, east side of town on Strawberry Alley, now South Dallas Street, Bethel Methodist, west side of town on East Saratoga near Jones Falls, and Sharp Street Methodist, west side of town on Sharp Street North. I will say that uh, there's a book on um, Reverend Thomas Henry, who's out of the Western Maryland area, that Dr. Papadopoulos wrote in the 1990s, so I, this is not my own theory, but it's one that I subscribe to. Is that Frederick Douglass, uh, Frederick Bailey, when he escapes Baltimore September 3, 1838, goes to New York City, Later settles in Bedford, Massachusetts. He changed his name to Douglas, from Bailey to Douglas. The story is that he read a poem, Lady of the Lake, etc. Uh, it is quite possible that Douglas is taking the name of Douglas was from the street um, at Asbury, and that Frederick Douglas was a night school teacher, John Forty, all sorts of stuff I will not get into. But I'm of the belief that Frederick Douglass possibly took the name Frederick Douglass as a nod and acknowledgement to his friends in Baltimore of the street corner from whence they organized and educated and worked to improve their community, the East Baltimore Mental Improvement Society. I'm not gonna get into that tonight. But I think that Douglass was very deliberate in, in, in his own way of making his story more appealing to, let's say, European Americans. He was very conscious of that. And that's kind of the duality W.E.B. Du Bois talks about that, etc. I won't talk, won't go on that, but I think that's a very, very interesting 
theory and one that I uh, believe. According to most scholars, Frederick had left Bethel to join Sharp Street because of the influence of Reverend John Forty, but they have overlooked the fact that Forty was also the minister at Asbury and possibly preached at Strawberry Alley, both of which were closer to where Anna and Douglas lived. This is from the Church Advocate, 1901. Strawberry Alley was built for the white people, the colored having the privilege of the galleries. It was a brick 41 by 30 feet. In 1801, the whites built on Wilt Street, a larger and more inviting house for their use, giving Strawberry Alley to the colored people. It was later known as Dallas Street. Great congregations, great revivals marked its history. Among the notable converts were Frederick Douglass and Dr. Charles Will Fisher. All right, Reverend James Handy. He's one of these many, many, many Annie uh, ministers. Bishop Payne is one of them. Bishop Tanner, Levy Coppin, Levy Coppin, who wrote Reminiscences. This is one from Reverend James Handy. Uh, he talks about the history of Methodism in Maryland, which was founded in, in Methodism in America, was founded in Maryland, Frederick County, 1764. It was integrated from its inception. As is here clearly shown, Methodism in the United States had its birth in Maryland, and from this point it has spread all over the continent. From the Strawberry Alley Meeting House and the Lovely Lane Meeting House has sprung all the branches of the Methodist Church in America. And by careful study of history, you will find that the African Methodist Episcopal Church is the oldest offspring. The congregation of the Strawberry Alley Meeting House exists today as the Centennial Methodist Episcopal Church, which now stands at the corner of Caroline and Bank Street, and is right now vacant, right? It's a vacant church. I believe it is. Richard Douglas spoke at uh, a couple churches that are vacant in, in Baltimore right now, but that's another story. Um, and the former meeting house of Strawberry Alley was purchased by the late Frederick Douglass and turned into dwelling houses and is now known as Douglass's Place. This was the first church in which Douglass held membership. It was in the old Strawberry Alley meeting house where the writer spent a part of his early boyhood days in Sunday school. Five okay. Um, Bishop Alexander Walker Wayne, seventh bishop of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, Chairman Dale Green, Morgan State professor, he's related to Bishop Wayne. Bishop Wayne was born in the Tuckahoe, Caroline County, 1812-1813. He was babysat by Anne Murray. He departed from Baltimore in 1840, and he eulogized Frederick Douglass at Metropolitan A&E in D.C. Because I am strapped for time, I'm just going to zip through this. So if you're mad at me, uh, take issue with uh, Ms. Fisher. All right, so uh, Bishop Wayman writes in Reminiscences in 1881. He recalls, real quickly, I will just say, this is what Bishop Wayman says, Miss Anna Murray, now Miss Frederick Douglass, came and kept house for my mother while she was attending this camp meeting. This must have been 1824, 1825. So the seventh bishop of the Andy Church knew Frederick Douglass' wife, Anna Murray, since they were children. I will quickly, I won't even go into this because I do want to take your questions. Please do not ask a question about Douglas and Lincoln. Um, Anna Murray recalled by her daughter Rosetta. Anna Murray was born in Denton, Caroline County, Maryland, an adjoining county to that in which my father was born. The exact date of her birth is not known. Her parents, Bambara Murray and Mary, his wife, were slaves. Their family consisting of 12 children, seven of whom were born in slavery and five born in freedom. My mother, the eighth child, escaped by the short period of one month. Remaining with her parents until she was 17, she felt at the time that she should be entirely self-supporting. With that idea, she left the country home and went to Baltimore, sought employment in a French family by the name of Montel, whom she served two years. Um, a lot of historians have not done historical justice to Anna Murray, um, and I hope that it will change. <coughs> All right, came for this interesting history, and you're going to get it. 
Okay, Frederick Douglass was extremely active in Baltimore following the uh, adoption of the Maryland Constitution in November of 1864, which abolished slavery. Some of you may know Frederick Douglass in November 1864 speaks at Bethel. He was very, very active in Baltimore. There was even speculation that he was going to start a newspaper in Baltimore. It's really fascinating, I'll just read this. Although largely overlooked, a variety of sources document a proximity Douglass had to Baltimore from November 1864, his first known visit to the city since escaping in September 1838 to mid-1866. This document to the right attest to a commitment Baltimore and its African-American community made to Dr. Douglas and the commitment Dr. Douglas made in return by lending his support to the growth of existing institutions and formation of new institutions in a post-Civil War city and state. This is July 5, 1865. Okay? This is an application for Frederick Douglass to make a lecture in Drew Hill Park. The mayor states that an application has been made to him by a committee of colored persons for permission to use Drew Hill Park for a lecture to be delivered by Frederick Douglass, the fee for admission being 25 cents. Resolved that the commission deems it imprudent to grant the application. I advance the proposed lecture in Drew Hill Park may have been to benefit the impending planned opening of the Douglass Institute. In the spring of 1865, 40 African Americans of Baltimore formed an association to purchase a building on Lexington Street formerly occupied by Newton University for $16,000. On October 1, 1865, the Douglas Institute was formally opened. Dr. Douglas spoke after an opening, was, uh, opening prayer was delivered by none other than Bishop Alexander Walker Wayman. They tried to kill Frederick Douglass in Baltimore. All right, if you read David Blake's book, not a fan of David Blake, but I will acknowledge the scholarship. I will acknowledge this 800, 900-page book. In his book, uh, David Blake does talk about how Baltimore was a very violent city. Some of you may know, obviously, Lincoln couldn't come through here, the riots, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and people had told Frederick Douglass, you're spending a lot of time in Baltimore. I think it's a little risky. You might want to watch it back. Uh, David Blake talks about that, but he does not talk about the assassination attempt on Frederick Douglass because he does not consult the sources and has graduate students do his research while I'm my own researcher. So, Douglass survives an assassination attempt in Baltimore, February of 1866. Lady to the right is Julia Ann Wilbur. There's a book published a couple years ago about her. The Alexandria uh, Municipal Government has actually digitized her diary that covers the Civil War era and early years of Reconstruction. She writes, March 1, 1866, when F. Douglas was in Baltimore last, he was shot at twice when leaving the depot. To the bottom left is a newspaper account. An attempt was recently made by three ruffians to assassinate Fred Douglas in Baltimore. Bricks were hurled and pistols drawn, and Fred only escaped the interposition of friends. What station was that? That was President, that was President Street Station. I believe that was built 1849-1850. It's most likely that the assassination attempt was somewhere around that location. All right, I've been told, I've try, I'm trying to cut this off. I'm trying to get 730 and take the questions. Just bear with me, Ms. Fisher, thank you. All right, so um, Civil War memory, it's a big thing people talk about. I think half of the memory history is, half of it is already speculative. Not really big on that. I like to deal with the actual sources and histories that we can talk about and discuss that happened, as opposed to memories. Well, Frederick Douglass spoke at Arlington National Cemetery. He was involved in the Army, uh, the Society for the Army of the Covenant. His son 
Charles Douglas was a major in the Grand Army of the Republic. So Douglas was well aware of the meaning of the Civil War and the sacrifices of the Union troops and his three adult sons served in the United States public troops. 1870s Washington, 1870s Baltimore, excuse me, 1870s Baltimore, Douglas was here all the time in the 1870s and 1880s and 1890s. It's a little interesting item. To the left, this gentleman, Harry Gilmore, was a prisoner of war twice. He was a Confederate cavalry officer. He was at the Battle of Monocacy. He was a real swashbuckler. All right? It's a little newspaper item. Harry Gilmore and Fred Douglas. So let me take a step back. He was police commissioner in the 1870s. Harry Gilmore and Fred Douglas, Baltimore, November 27, during the um, obsequies of the vice president at the city hall yesterday, Major Harry Gilmore, a well-known and conspicuous Confederate cavalry officer during the war, was introduced to Fred Douglas, and a morning paper says the following occurred. The major said, Mr. Douglas, let us shake hands across the bloody chasm. Mr. Douglas replied, no. Major Gilmore, there's no bloody chasm. Let us shake hands across a free country. All right, Fanny Jackson Coppin, principal Fanny Jackson Coppin. Okay, this is a younger photo of Miss Coppin. Okay, her uh, husband was a, a minister, Douglas Wilhelm. The bottom is a letter from 1876 that Miss Fanny Jackson sent to Douglas. The bottom, I'll just read this. A meeting was, this is in 1878. A meeting was held last night at Bethel African Methodist Church, Saratoga Street, Baltimore, to hear Marshall Frederick Douglas uh, of this, uh, speak. And Douglas spoke in favor of colored teachers in the public colored schools of Baltimore. Nearly forgotten the convenient and familiar story of Dr. Frederick Douglas, a suffragette, working with suffragists is the countless associations and relationships Dr. Douglas had with radical women educators. From Emily Edmondson to Martilla Minor, who was a white lady at Minor's Teachers College, is well known in DC, um, to Frances Harper, to Georgiana R. Simpson, who was one of the first three African-American women to earn a doctorate, to Mary Church Terrell, to Anna Julia Cooper, fourth African-American woman to earn a PhD. She got her PhD from uh, La Sorbonne in Paris to Charlotte Fortune Grimke, to Fanny Jackson Coppin. Douglas was a tireless advocate for public education of African-Americans from primary school to the university. While Douglas served on the Board of Trustees at Howard University for more than two decades, he worked closely with many of the early founders and faculty of Centenary Biblical Institute, which would become Morgan State University. Dr. Douglas knew principal Fanny Jackson Coppin professionally for more than two decades likely first meeting her in Philadelphia, where she served as an instructor and later principal of the Institute for Colored Youth, which is where Richard Greer, Ebenezer Bissett, all of these very important forgotten folks. And I know uh, you guys had the author of the Richard Greer book uh, recently. Richard Greer is the first African-American to graduate from Harvard, to earn a degree from Harvard. Douglas was very, very close with Richard Greer. 1913, uh, Fanny Jackson had a memoir published says, Frederick Douglass once said it was easier to get a colored boy into a lawyer's office than into a blacksmith's shop on account of the inflexibility of the trades unions. This condition of affairs still continues making it necessary for us to have our own blacksmith's shop. All right. I know I'm over time. Give me three more minutes and take your questions. This stuff is actually, this, all this stuff is important. All right. Captain of the Eastern District, Benjamin F. All, okay, Captain Benjamin F. All, 1828-1898, was the older brother of Tommy All, who was attended to by a young Frederick family beginning in about 1825. Douglas is sent, sent to Baltimore from the Eastern Shore. Douglas, before he comes to Baltimore, is the playmate of Daniel Lloyd, 
who was the son of Edward Lloyd V. So Frederick Douglass before coming to Baltimore was the playmate of the governor's son. Okay, Hugh Auld died in 1857, and in 1864, Douglas made an effort to speak with Sophia Auld, Benjamin's mother, but was rebuked at the door due to the Auld family disagreeing with their depiction in Douglas's autobiographies. In September 1891, Captain Auld and Dr. Douglas began a series of correspondence. In, 184, in 1894 letter to Auld, Douglas recalls being a fearless running member of the Point Boys and retrieving water from a pump on Washington Street. Uh, to the right is a letter that... Uh, Captain All sends to Frederick Douglass. This is just a continuation of that letter. On the bottom you can see Eastern Police Station. Oops. All right, um, the All family's buried in Baltimore Cemetery, so we may already know that. Um, I won't belabor the point, this is really interesting. Hugh Auld was actually a night watchman for the Eastern District. These records can be found in the Baltimore City Archives. All right, almost done, Mr. Bishop. Okay, Bishop Wayne's Tribute. Okay, uh, this is from the Baltimore American. Got this right upstairs in the United Pratt Library in the microphone. Okay, Bishop Wayne's Tribute. A philanthropist in the broad sense and a friend of the race. Bishop Alexander Walker Wayman of African Methodist Episcopal Church when told of the death of Honorable Frederick Douglass last night by, by an American reporter said, he has been one of my best friends for the past 50 years and I always had the highest regard for him. He first became acquainted in Philadelphia in 1846. His first wife whose maiden name was Miss Annie Murray lived with my father and mother before her marriage. Mr. Douglas and I were born in adjoining counties on the Eastern Shore, he in Talbot and I in Caroline. I first heard of Mr. Douglas, however, in 1836. He was then a young man living in uh, St. Michael's, Talbot County, and was a slave owned by one Captain Auld. The last time Mr. Douglas visited me was last May when he delivered an address at the unveiling of the Bishop Payne Monument at Laurel Cemetery. All right, um, I do walking tours, Anacostia, uh, for lots of years, they're kind of fun. To the right is a mural at 16th and W Street, which I mentioned earlier of Frederick Douglass is very regal. Douglass is about 12 or 13 feet tall, and he has the district flag. Um, the corner store owner and I kind of worked together to um, get that mural up there. The presentation of Frederick Douglass came with just a photo on the bottom left. There's another mural of Douglass and Lincoln that's on Cedar Street, right around the corner from the Douglass house. Um, this is a view from the summit of Cedar Hill. How many people have been to Douglas House in BC? All right, wonderful, a lot of you. For those of you who have been, please go back. It's a wonderful place to bring friends, family. For those of you who have not been, barring government shutdowns, it's open seven days a week from nine to four. It has, uh, the, the rangers give the tour of the interior of the house, but the grounds you can go there like play baseball with your like, kids or softball, have a picnic or something like that, or those of you in that you know, relationship game, you bring up, you know, you'll impress your other person by, they always go to Douglas House. It's a cool place. Uh, you can see the Washington Monument to the left. The Capitol was put there in 1885. Frederick Douglass in February 1887 goes to Egypt and sees the original obelisks. Um, he actually, Douglass is in Egypt, goes to Al Al-Zahar University, the old Islamic Cairo, but scholars don't won't tell you that. To the right is the, uh, you see the far right is the Washington, uh, excuse me, the Capitol Dome. The Statue of Freedom was put there in 1863. So the skyline today that we see, the panoramic skyline punctuated by the Washington Monument to the left and the uh, Capitol Dome to the right is the same skyline that Frederick Douglass saw. 
And uh, with no further ado, I will just give special thanks to those folks that you can read. I will ask one question. This mural of Frederick Douglass, which is up on North Avenue, West Side, by Coppin State University. It took this about summer of 17, late summer of 17. I don't know if they have fixed that. Can anybody tell me there's two errors on that mural, the city commission mural? Douglas's name, Douglas's name is spelled inaccurately, and the date of his death is inaccurate. So with that said, I hope I did not uh, step on too many people's toes. This scholarship is really important. It's really, really sacred because there are communities that uh, people who, who don't study formally, who study Frederick Douglass, and the fact that uh, sometimes it's just mythologized and genuflected hero worship. We can't just talk about what Frederick Douglass meant to the everyday person because when Frederick Douglass was a living entity, he was an everyday person. He was approachable. So with all that said, I don't really have a, a clean closing. We have about 20, 25 minutes for questions, hopefully. And book signing. And book signing. Um, where's Dr. Jones' book is available, as well as mine. And uh, we'll take your questions. OK, I see a gentleman up front here. Sir, can you please stand? Yes, thank you for your question. The question was, why do I refer to Frederick Douglass as Dr. Frederick Douglass? Well, I do that because um, Washington College, as well as the University of Rochester, uh, awarded honorary degrees on Frederick Douglass. So as a form of respect, I say Dr. Frederick Douglass. In his life, he was known as Reverend Douglass, Honorable Douglass, usually some sort of title. So I think uh, for Frederick Douglass, never attended a single day of formal school in his life, yet he was on the board of Howard Store many university presidents, so I think a Dr. Frederick Douglass is an appropriate title. Do we have any other questions? Because if not, I can start this conversation with John in particular. And I would like for you to share very briefly why do you feel his legacy needs to be remembered in gross detail, if at all, in terms of him being part of the triumvirate of black history when you have Douglass, King, and Tubman, that's pretty much the triumvirate of history, and all three of those individuals we know very superficially, but they're very commercialized. So can you unpack that for us in terms of Douglas? What does a deeper legacy mean? It's a wonderful question. Uh, I think the reason why the study of uh, Frederick Douglass I think is really important is because when you study Douglass, you study the associations, the connections, the relationships that he had with, um, you know, we know about Douglass and suffragists, and he was also very aligned with educators. Um, he, was a, he was a political entity. And so when you start to study Douglas, you start to learn more about Richard Greener, Fanny Jackson Coppin, Institute of Colored Youth. You start to learn that Douglas did not exist as a singular, solitary figure. Wilberforce University in June 1893 awards Douglas an honorary degree. Douglas knew all of the folks from Wilberforce. So I think that when we get beyond the reenacting and the reading of What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, you start to learn the associations that Frederick Douglass had. And for example, I did not know anything about Richard Theodore Greener before I found uh, something in the newspaper in 1917 where, where Richard Greener is, is recalling a story that uh, Frederick Douglass told Greener that the reason why he wore the hair the way he did, or he wore his hair as a bushy style, is because when Douglass was a young man, possibly in Baltimore, he saw a print of Alexander Dumas was a uh, Afro-Franco Afro writer, wrote The Three Musketeers, Count of Monte Cristo, and that Douglas was very struck by um, Dumas's 
presentation is very unapologetically African, and Douglas adopted that and, and wore that hairstyle his entire life. Now, if Richard Theodore, if I hadn't stumbled upon that 1917 account, I would have never known that story. I said, well, who is Richard Greener? What, this guy went to Harvard? Why have I never heard of him? So uh, also, I will quickly say, uh, Donna Wells, who was a scholar at uh, Howard University, was very an early scholar on Frederick Douglass and representation and photos. So to quickly bring that back home is that the reason why I think this, the scholarship and study of Douglass is important because then we learn that Douglass touched a lot of different communities in Maryland. And the Harriet Tubman Byway and Park is wonderful. Other than the Bucktown store, I do not know that there's a single building extent that we know Harriet Tubman ever walked in or walked through on the Eastern Shore, yet he spoke in four of the county courthouses. Three of those courthouses still exist today. There are numbers of schools, hotels, private residences, and St. Michael's. There's all sorts of things that can be done to uplift and acknowledge Douglas, even here in Baltimore. And so I think when we get past the mythologizing, we start to learn why this is important to, you know, um, I mean, there are, there are multiple churches that Frederick Douglass spoke at to benefit. Post-Civil War, Douglas spoke to benefit night schools, scholarship funds, orphanages. Queen Chapel in Frederick, Maryland, when Douglas spoke in Frederick, the proceeds went to benefit that church. That church is still there. So I think that's why the, the study of Douglas is important, because it's not just a singular figure, but it's the study of the impact that he had and the legacy that he has left for us. In light of time, and as a person who does public service, I want to thank the Public Library for this evening. They do have copies of his book for sale, John's book outside for sale. We encourage you to support the store. If not, please check it out. I see a copy on the shelf. Are there any other questions? I know you have a blog. Can you share your blog uh, site with us so that we can follow you on social media? Sure. Um, I have this blog. It's called Line of Anacostia. The, uh, the title of my book is Frederick Douglass in Washington, D.C., The Line of Anacostia. If you just Google search The Line of Anacostia, it's a WordPress blog. I've been talking sugar, honey, iced tea on there for many years, and um, it's kind of important. I share all sorts of things that are of interest to me. Uh, so, And I also, I'm very, uh, I, I really encourage people to study Douglass, and I try to share videos of other scholars, a work of other scholars, and like, I think that uh, there really needs to be a greater spirit of collaboration to uplift Douglas's history. And I really do thank uh, Ms. Fisher for this opportunity. I was, I was thinking that Josiah Henson could be added to the group of Frederick Douglass and Douglas Harriet Tubman Byway and Park. We just finding out all that information about him recently. I mean, even though he was a became a Canadian, an Afro-Canadian. He was a Marilyn also. There is a book out by the History Press on Josiah Henson, and there's actually a documentary by Jason Brock, a Canadian. That's a very nice documentary PBS has. So Maryland's history is rising to the surface, and it really has lots of national and, I guess, hemispheric touch points. So you all should be very proud. So we're all just very happy to celebrate that history. Any other questions or any other shared information? All right, once again, we want to thank the Public Library. There are books here. It's a lot of information, so we're just letting it sink in. But we do want to be mindful of the time and make our way uh, towards our homes before the impending snow and winter weather. Once again, thank you for your patience. Please uh, share this information. And once again, thank you, Enoch Pratt. Thank you all for coming. I hope okay. to see you at future programs. <laughs>
This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.